This is your host, Vernon Terrell, with Grace Ministries International, and it's time for Walking Free. And we're back, and thank you for joining. We have a special guest with us, and of course, Kyle is special, uh, but he's with us a lot. Uh, Kyle, welcome. Hey, and, uh, <laughs> you're always special. But we have an even more uh, special, if you can believe that, even more special than Kyle. Um, I'm teasing Kyle, but we have Valerie Asalis here with us. And Valerie is the director of Homeless Services, uh, services at Christian Assistance Ministry. So, Valerie, welcome. Hey, and uh, we're going to hear a little bit about Valerie's story, and we're going to hear about um, the ministry that she's running. And is it San Antonio, Texas? Yes, San Antonio, Texas. Yes, uh, so in Texas. And uh, so, Valerie, I want you just to kick us, uh, kind of kick it off here with uh, your story. And of course, the podcast is around walking free, and we love to hear stories about how God has set people free, uh, especially uh, in their understanding of their new identity in Christ and their their forgiveness in Christ. So can you tell us a little bit of background and your story? You can start from the beginning or wherever you want to start. Sure. I can actually, I'd love to start on the day I became free, um, free from mm. the chains. And that was in 2013, October 23rd of 2013, I was free um, from from uh, many addictions, uh, drug addiction, sexual addiction, um, you name it, Men- treated mental health issues, definitely. Mm. Uh, but what my life looked like before that, I grew up here in San Antonio, Texas. I'm an identical twin sister. Um, oh, wait, I'm a twin, but not identical. But whoa, okay. twin. <laughs> Twinsy, twin power, but whatever. Yes, go ahead. Yes. So, um, so yeah, I grew up a twin mother and father grew up in a, in a very abusive home, I guess you can say Mm. my father was, um, was an active alcoholic and untreated alcoholic. Um, and so, you know, the wrath of that. And, um, I grew up with a lot of really confusion, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, a ton of fear, um, I grew up in an environment where God was not spoken of. Um, we we lived across the street at a little church. A church was across the street, and I remember people going to church thinking like, "Oh, that's where the good people go," you know. Mm. And I remember asking my dad, like, "Dad, you know, like, can we go to church?" I thought maybe if I went to church, that you know, I might I might be like the good people or feel like the good people. And I remember my dad telling me to you know be quiet and and just to go pray in my room and that this God was everywhere, right? Um, so that was kind of my my experience growing up and and the level of God as far as God being shared in my home. And when I became 14, um, my dad got sick uh, really, really quickly, really unexpectedly. My dad was this big, hard worker. He never got sick a day in his life. So it was super bizarre for him to get sick. He got sick, was diagnosed with leukemia, um, and he died really quickly. Um, it took him in a matter of six months. Wow. Uh, so here I am, you know, 14 year old teen, beginning of my teenage years, coming out of tons of, you know, childhood trauma unhealed. My, my father, um, who was my protector and abuser, just completely passes away. And um, I'm left with my mother who 
who also had some, you know, untreated traumas and things from the the past. So I just kind of went off to the races. One, I didn't have my protector there anymore. So my, my father never let us do anything when we were little. So of course I could go do what I wanted. And I started that day, I started drinking. I remember going um, out with a friend and trying Budweiser and it was off to the races. I remember feeling like, ah, how old were you then again? Uh, 14, 14. And you're starting with your first bud. 14. Yeah. And I also, I also got pregnant at that age. Um, yeah. Yeah. So here I am 14. Um, trying to make it on my own pregnant. I ended up losing the baby. Um, and I ended up dropping out of school. Um, and um and my journey and independence if you will uh started there um i've always been like a really hard worker i've always kept jobs um was that a big driver though for you um to be independent absolutely um i think that came from like growing up in an environment where i had to like figure things out for myself or i always had this mindset or belief system that like if i needed something then i was going to have to figure that out or mm. the answer to me was always no so my rebelliousness i i grew up developing the spirit of like rebelliousness like well if you tell me no then i'm going to figure out how to make it happen you know mm. um, right that's how that was kind of molded yeah wow so so you're 14 you've you're you've kind of experienced experimented with some drinking, sexual activity, pregnant, lose the baby. Um, are you now, you drop out of school, you have a job now. Yes. Um, and actually I, I started working at a dealership. Um, my goal at that time at 14 going into 15 was I couldn't wait to be 18. Why? Mm-hmm. Why I be 18? Because my goal in life at that time was I wanted to become a Hooter girl. <laughs> Sounds silly, but... <laughs> Growing up in a, in an environment where everything's about, you know, um, the glitter and glam and, you know, look this way, you know, I said, that's what I got to do. And, and, uh, that was my goal. And, and I did that this, the day I turned 18, I applied at Hooters. Um, I wanted to, my goal in life was to travel, to make the calendar and travel the world with their tour. Um, and I started to do that. I, I made the calendar, um, we were about to take off to our first photo shoot in Vegas. Um, and I decided to go out to a kegger party. Um, and that night I got, this was that back in the days when the date rape drug, I don't know if you remember that, but it's coming out. I mean, this is back, you know, and I, I was given the date rape drug that night, um, taken to a wooded area and beat up from head to toe. My teeth were knocked out, raped by three men. Um, you know, again, always dominated by al- my alcoholism, I'm always smashed by the drinking. I always place myself um, in situations to, to get hurt. Um, so that happened. And, and again, you know, my dreams, if you will, of, of you know, going off to the calendar were smashed. My, my face was messed up pretty bad. Um, so, yeah, that, that was my that was my goal. That, and, you know, and every time I tried to reach it, I kind of get there and then I'd, I'd be smashed. Um, with my addiction or alcoholism. What did you do after that? So that dream is just lost. Number one, you've been traumatized. Um, I assume there was some medical work and, or hospitals. What happened after that? Sure. And that's, I'm glad you asked that. Um, not much actually. Um, I, I never pursued anything with the people who hurt me because of shame. Um, I never, 
I, I really didn't do anything after that as far as like getting some help. I thought I was the one that it was all my fault. Anyway, I decided to go to the kegger party. I wanted to drink, you know. Um, you put a lot of that self, that that blame and just uh, all on you. Did, you. did you have a support system? Did you have anybody around you? No, I had nobody. Um, my sister was off doing her own thing. My mother had gone off to do her own thing. Um, we were fighting a lot. Um, I, I had zero support system. Um, I had met the, the father of my boys around that time. Um, and uh, we started dating. And then I ended up getting pregnant with my first son. Um, and I ended up leaving Hooters because of that. Mm. So. Wow. Having the boys. Yeah, I have two boys. They're 19 and 20. But I, I had them around that time. Right. So what? So you've got um, that dream is gone. You've got. A relationship it sounds like you said that kind of busted up but you have your boys right and how did you survive single mom boys yeah i actually left the boys dad um when my son the boys were both in diapers one was one the other one was maybe a few months and and things were getting bad because of my alcoholism and his alcoholism and we were fighting and he was beating me up to a point where I couldn't even go to work anymore. And I left him with the diaper bag and the clothes on our backs and started all over by myself. Um, I started working mom and pop jobs here and there. Uh, my family was kind of helping me. It was really, really hard with two boys in diapers. Um, Were you still drink? Was alcohol still um, just with, was that still an issue? Oh, Absolutely. I hate to admit that, but alcohol was my solution. Um, every day, like the stress, the, the unmanageability, the, the shame, the, you know, the pressure, everything. Um, absolutely. Alcohol was a part of that. Wow. That, that solution for that. Did the, this, I, this idea of the alcohol, was it to cope or was it an escape? What was it really for you at that time? It was definitely an escape. Okay. I didn't see it as a coping thing. It was definitely an out. Mm. And then so, mixed, with, mixed with, you know, when I did have that substance in me, I, I had that false confidence of, you know, or false courage, I guess you can say, to talk to people and to do things that I couldn't do when I was sober, you know? Right. It, it, I mean, it's so attractive because it does something for you. Yeah. You know, that's why it is attractive. It, it's, but it's, all the other negative we kind of put out of our minds uh, with it. So here you are, you're in this cycle, if you will, of this addictive behavior with two little ones holding some jobs. How did you, what, what was, what happened next in this journey of you? How long were you in that space? I did that for a few years until the boys were about seven and eight. And that's when things started to, really decline. I had a domestic violence situation in 2011. Um, I was dating a man, um, also toxic relationship. Him and I had been back and forth since high school days. Um, and after a domestic violence situation, he decided to, we were arguing about an ex-girlfriend of his. One night I was drunk, he was drunk and um, he was very suicidal. And uh, he left, I kicked him out. He left, he drove to her house with a gun um, he shot her. He waited for her to walk outside. He shot her, and then he shot himself in the head. Um, and they both lost their lives that day. Um, and this was in 2011. And when that happened, 
I had kind of just been all those years trying to keep my head above water, you know, toxic relationships, you know, horrible behaviors. And, um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. So I, so I, I was just keeping my head above water up until then, until that situation happened. And when, when the murder suicide happened, it was blasted all over the news. And, and at this, by this time I was working at an apartment, I was in apartment management and I was working in an apartment complex and I was living on the apartment complex that I worked at. So once that was blasted all over the news, I lost my job. I lost the, my home obviously, cause I lived on the property I worked at. My ex-husband saw what happened on the news and he filed an immediate removal for the boys to be removed from me. Um, they were literally, they literally drove over, removed them from school that day. And I, they were taken from me. So all in one weekend, um, dealing with the murder suicide, you know, I lost my job, my home, my boys, my sanity. Um, and this was in 2011 and that next year, um, you know, I had nowhere to go. I started working at a bar, um, which was perfect for me because I could drink on the job. I don't remember a lot of that year because I was I was in I started using meth. I was introduced to methamphetamines that year. Um, and that's when I spiraled down quickly. I mean, I was in and out of psych wards, in and out of detox centers, in and out of overdosing. I started um, I, the spirit of suicide really started to manifest in my life around that time. So I was in and out of psych wards because I kept trying to kill myself. Um, and that year got really dark, really quick. I ended up um, along the way getting uh, temporarily committed to our state hospital. Mm. What messages were really, do you remember some of the messages that you were hearing during that time? Some of the messages? So, yeah, some of the messages in your brain, going through your brain that were uh, really um, pushing you toward these suicidal ideations Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I can give you an example of a tangible message that actually, I remember, I'll never forget this. I remember waking up because, because what the, the words that were being spoken over me were conducive or matched to my belief system at that time. Right. And I was like, okay, this is true. So I remember waking up from an overdose and I remember a white coat doctor standing in front of me with a pen and pad, like normal. Right like usual. And I remember him asking me, um, it says that you have children here. And, and I remember coming to, you know, yes, I have two boys. I don't have them, but, uh, but I do have two boys. And I remember him looking me in the eye and telling me, you should be so ashamed of yourself. Good night. And, um, and I, I looked at him dumbfounded and, and he said, you know how many people are out here trying to have kids and you're over here trying to kill yourself. Um, it's so selfish. And I remember thinking, up, oh, you're right. That's all I needed to hear. Like, um, so again, like those are the messages I got and you know, that actually happened. Right. But I also found myself creating stories in my head, you know, that matched up with the, with all of the shame, you know, what were some of the stories that, and probably obviously the enemy throwing all kind of lies and stories in your brain. What were some of those that you were wrestling with? I think one of the biggest ones was that um, I'm just not, I don't have anything to offer. You know, like, what am I, what am I even doing here? Like, all I'm doing is living and sucking the life out of people. No matter what I do, no matter what I do, even the good things, the hardworking things, the behind the scenes things, it's never enough. Like, I'm never going to make it. I think that was like the biggest thing because that touched every like area of my life, if that makes sense. It's like you were losing 
you lost hope too. Right. There's never enough. It's never prop. It's never going to get better. And there is no one, hope. Yeah. Another big one is that you cannot trust anybody. You can't trust anybody. Don't trust anybody. Um, that was that was a really huge. I lived by that. How did you get through all of that? You know that. How long would you say that period from the from that awful moment when you lost your job? Boys have been stripped away, um, in and out of the psych wards. What was that period of time? How long were you in that? That was all about a good year. That was all through like 2012. I, yeah, 2012, what happened in 2012, um, I call this the beginning of the end because I call that whole time just the Great Depression for me. Like when I look at the timeline of my life, being in the state hospital and all of those things. But when I got out of the state hospital, I got summoned to go to court. I don't even remember why or how I showed up because this was when I was high and, you know, but and I had no leg to stand on for a court hearing. What this court hearing was, was basically for me to sign my rights away completely as a mother. I couldn't even have visitation, like nothing, because they had found out that I had gotten committed. So my ex-husband was using that against me, rightfully so. And so I'm, I'm at the courthouse and, you know, I signed the paper. I, I don't have a leg to stand on. I don't even have an attorney, nothing, right? And I'm walking out. And when I'm going to the elevator, I remember like looking at the tiles on the floor and everything. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm just going to go find a gun. Like I trying to kill myself. Somebody keeps bringing me back. Cause every time I try to kill myself, someone would find, I plan it. I go around, like I plan it intensely and somebody would always find me. So I was like, wow. I'm going to find a gun. I'm walking to the elevator and um, I get to the elevator and this man approaches me and this man, his name is Mark Jones, and he runs the Mark Jones Ministry. He's he does a lot of like fear and trauma seminars. He's a, he's a counsel, a spiritual counselor. Um, he will tell you now, like I know this now because he shares this with me. But he says when he saw me walking down that hallway, he saw a dead woman walking, and he clearly heard God tell him, "Go help her, go help her," and he approached me. And I felt the Holy Spirit. I know that now. I didn't know that then. But again, this is a time where don't, especially if you're a man, don't approach me. Don't talk to me. I can't trust anybody. Um, but when he approached me, I didn't feel those things. I felt the Holy Spirit. Um, he gave me his card. He was very loving. Um, he started talking to me about the tattoo on my arm. Um, and he told me, the next time you ever need anything, I want you to pick up the phone and call me. I don't care what it is. And I did that. Smartest thing I could ever do, right? Wow. Um, the next day I wanted to kill myself. I didn't go look for the gun that day, but the next day I started to look for the gun. Um, I had a cousin on the West side that I was just going to go to. Right. And so I called him instead. And by the end of the day, he had me in his office and, and the beginning of the end started then. That was the first time someone ever prayed over me. Um, he anointed mm. oil on my head. I had a very powerful experience that day. That's incredible. Yeah. Is that, so take us, now to this point where you where you again it you had a powerful experience did you really meet christ at that point or was there a a a, a journey that day i acknowledged like because what happened was he took me in his office and I, and when i went in the office i had my agenda i sat down and i told him this verbatim i said there are things that i have done that i will never talk about 
So don't even ask me about that. There are things that I've done that are not forgivable. Hmm. Let's not talk about that. And he was so loving, right? Didn't even shake him, right? It's like I'm sitting in front of Jesus. (laughs) And he's like, I have this Bible on my shelf that's really special to me. And he asked, like, he's like, can I just, can I, can I, can I pray over you? And I was, has anybody prayed over you? And I was like, no, no one's prayed over me. I thought it was super awkward, right? He grabs some oil, anoints my head, walks over with the Bible. He opens the Bible up to uh, James 5.16, right? James 5.16 to confess to one another, right? Because I'm sitting there telling him I'm never going to confess to him. Right? Like, so he's, he's, he's hit me back with the sword, right? And like, and so, and that happened, right? I, I wish I could say I had a burning bush moment. I didn't like he prayed James 516 over me. And then I walked, I walked out, went to the elevator to leave it. When I got in the elevator, this happened. I get in the elevator and I'm like, James 516, James 516. What? Cause, cause but the, at this time with scripture, Vernon, like I knew nothing about scripture. I knew nothing about the Bible. I didn't know there were books in the Bible. I didn't know what the numbers and the dots meant. Like I had zero clue. So when I'm in the elevator, that's something about James 516 kept ringing. And then it, I, it hit me two days before my ex Nicholas killed himself. I know it sounds crazy as tragic as that situation sounded and happened and went down horribly tragic, but he was a believer. He was a believer and he would bring me down to his knee to my knees and he would try to teach me how to pray. He would take me to go light candles. Like he had a re- very real spiritual warfare like battle going on in him. Right. He was in mafia and stuff like that. Like, so he was trying to get out of the game, you know? So I, I get that, you know, but um, in any case, two days before all of, you know, the murder suicide, we were laying on my bed and he was, we were joking around and he told me, because again, we've been off and on since high school, right? He's seen me in relationships. I've seen him in relationships. We've had kids with, you know. And so anyways, he's like, what are you What are you even looking for in a man? And he's like, we've been off and on for years. Like, you're not settled down. You know, what do you want? And I was like, I don't know what I want in a man. I, obviously, I'd be with a man if I knew that, right? And then he tells me, he's like, you're going to find the man that you're looking for in the book of James. And I was like, what's the book? James. Like, I didn't even know what that was. And he was laughing at me. He's like, remember the Bible I gave you in the Bible. There is a book called James in the book of James is the man you are looking for. I was like, whatever that means. And so I'm in the elevator fast forward, right? And James 516, 516 is Nicholas's birthday. Oh me. That is something. So I'm in the elevator, James 516. Nicholas told me that the man I was looking for would be in the book of James. 516 is Nicholas's birthday. So I'm in this office with this man talking to me about the book of James. Who ends up up leading me to Christ, by the way? So like it was in that moment where I hit my knees and I, I didn't give, I didn't necessarily give my life to Jesus in that moment, but I knew that I knew that I knew that there was a God and that he was seeking me, absolutely. He was at work in your oh, life. Yeah, and I lost it. I mean, and and since that day, I felt this unspoken subconscious level of trust for this man. Um, mm. And he was my go-to. And it was baby steps. And it was loving. Um, That's so, amazing. Yeah, yeah. That was, that, that was the day, um, the beginning of the end, I should say. You know. Wow. So, so you, you've you found someone you can actually trust, maybe the only person at that point. 
that you can really trust. And then you come to a point, he leads you to Jesus. And tell me a little bit about that. Sure. He has these fear and trauma seminars called the Trinity Program. Um, and I didn't even know this was happening in the moment, but what he did was he got a, a seat scholarship for me because it's not cheap. And the first night I went to that, again, all of this stuff is super awkward to me. I've never been to a therapy session. I've never like, you know what I mean? Like all mm-hmm. of these things are super foreign to me. So I'm sitting in this room with all of these believers, which is also super new to me. Um, you know, people who are seasoned, people who have gone through these things. And that first night, um, they had a process where you basically had to confess your, you know, your biggest thing that you were holding on to. And I was holding on to the murder suicide situation because I had never talked about it at that point. Um, I played a very significant part in that that night because I lied to Nicholas about something that drove him to go shoot her, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? You know, so shoot her? No. But did I set the ball rolling and play a part of that? Absolutely. Um, and so because of that, I was, I, I was never going to talk about that. I was never going to say that I lied to Nick and made him go over there. I was never going to talk about that because in my mind, I should be in death row. I should be sitting on death row right now. And, um, and so that night, um, he has a, a, a counselor that works under him. Her name is Nancy and she noticed me and she came and kneeled down next to me and we were doing a personal inventory on, on the rape and stuff. And she was really help, having me like get like honest like right, right dig down. deep and get in there yeah. yeah i was like what is this chick doing like like i can't put that on paper like are you kidding me but i did it and by the end of the night i was voicing um i was voicing to jesus um that i was free that i had been set free and that i was new in him um and and i was believing it and voicing it and i started counseling under her since that day she took me under her wing and what she would do because that next day I had such a powerful experience that night in a perfect world. Everyone's like, Oh, of course she's going to go back the next day. No, because of that experience, I wasn't going to go back the next day. I went and got drunk that night. I went to the bar. I went to the club, got drunk. I was like, I'm not going back to that. Whatever happened. It's not for me. Like we're good people. So I'm going to go do what I do. Right. Went out, got drunk the next day. Nancy's blowing up my phone in the morning. This counselor that doesn't even know me is like calling me. And then I finally answer. I'm all hungover, right? And she's like, where are you? We're having breakfast. I miss you. Like, you know, and I was just like, oh, I made an excuse, right? And then she was like, I'll come pick you up. I was like, what? Like, (laughs) that's not like, no, let me be hungover. Like, you know what I mean? And sure enough, so she got me back to that Trinity program. And she would seek me relentlessly like that. Um, I was cleaning houses on the side back then. She would like show up at a house I was cleaning with like a sandwich. I mean, the little things that the just being the love of Christ, you know, meeting, meeting me where I'm at, you know, um, no judgment. Yeah, man. Like, uh, it was just, it was so, it was so great. She took me under her wing and, and that's incredible. Did, did you, when you, uh, and you said these words and did you, uh, when you received Christ, did, were you understanding at that point this radical transformation of this new identity in him, or did that come a little bit later? No, that definitely came later. My actual like surrender, 
giving my life to Jesus happened again on that day, October 23rd in 2013. And what that looked like is throughout 2012, through that year when I was, I was still seeing Nancy, I still wasn't being completely honest with her. She knew, she knew. It's, yeah. It just reminds me of my relationship with Jesus. It's like, Jesus knows, right? But he's not going to put me on blast or anything. He's going to wait for him, for me to come to him, right? Like, and so... Um, I was lying to her, um, but that, that year got so bad, Vernon. Um, one of the dealers that I, I was staying in dope houses. So I was homeless at this time, but I was like couch surfing homeless, you know, like right. abandoned buildings and dope houses, trap houses while I was staying with this really abusive, um, one of my dealers. And I would just let them abuse me and the police would come and get me out. But then I'd wait around the corner for the police to leave. Cause I wanted to go back for my meth. Like that's how twisted it was. Um, and one day, like I was, I had stolen a vehicle from this other guy that I was seeing and I had the vehicle on me and I was staying in this abandoned house with that dealer. And I had this uh, like overwhelming desire to do the right thing, which was to return the vehicle. And in my mind, I was being a saint by doing that. You know, I was doing like the guy a favor. And so I'm driving to, to take this dude, his car back. And I have my friend following me. And I had, I had this very real experience kind of like when Paul's like on his way to Damascus and he's like, he gets stopped and it's like, like, where are you going? Like, what are you doing type thing? Does that make sense? You know, yeah. like, like stopped on my way over there. And I had that moment. I couldn't hear exact words, but I had this feeling of like, you need to stop already. Like stop lying to me. Like I felt the Holy spirit, like it was almost like stop denying me type thing, do the right thing. And the right thing to do was to return the car, go back and be honest about my addiction and be honest with myself and someone else that I cannot stop smoking meth every day. And my life is absolutely unmanageable. And so I did that. I returned the car. I went back to the dope house. I waited for my dealer to fall asleep and I called Nancy from the closet. Wow. Uh, and I, and I, I was bawling. I was so scared that because I was lying to her that she wasn't going to love me anymore and my person was going to be gone, you know? And so sh she responded completely opposite. She was, I called her. I said, look, I've been lying to you. I'm smoking meth every day. I can't stop. I'm staying in a dope house. I'm getting beat up every day. Like I'm done. And I was like, and if I leave my dealer, because at this point, my dealer had pictures of me naked using um, in an envelope with my with my family yep. address on it. <laughs> yep. So I was like, I don't even care about that anymore. Like, I don't I don't care. Like, just get me out. So she told me, hang up the phone. I love you. Call 911. Do whatever you have to do to get out of there. And, and I will come get you. So I did that. I hang up the phone. I call 911. And mind you, we're in an abandoned building where there's no address. I don't even know where I'm at. Like I was trying to explain. So I'm on the phone with PD, right? And I'm telling them the situation. By this time, my dealer's woken up. My dealer is pissed off. And I'm telling my dealer, I'm done. I've already been honest with everybody. You have nothing against me anymore to hold against me. Like I'm done. I'm leaving. And he was blocking the, the door for me to leave with a butcher knife. So I'm on the phone with PD yelling at them that I'm about to get killed to please get me out. PD is trying to tell me we need an address. We can't find you. I have no address. And the de my dealer's in front of me with a butcher knife. And I don't know if you remember around this time, but there was this show that came out back then called like Snapped. And mm. I used to watch that show and I just remember thinking, oh my God, like this person's going to snap and this, I don't want to die like this, not by knife. Like I don't just get me out of here. Right. So it was that moment. Um, I remember Nancy telling me to, to lean in on, on Jesus. 
anytime. Wow. And I dropped the phone. I hit my knees. I covered my ears. I started rocking back and forth, praying the only scripture I could remember Nancy teaching me, which was walk by faith, not by sight. Well, I just started chanting that walk by faith, not by sight, walk by faith. And I was just like, in my mind, what I, what my spirit was screaming was like, God, if you get me out of here, I will serve you forever. Like what, I don't care if I need to clean the toilets, like whatever that looks like, like just I'm done, you know? Yep. It's like my spirit was crying out for that. And sure enough, um, from one second to the next, my dealer swung the door open. It was raining outside and I took off running. Um, and I met the police down the street. Um, and then by the end of that day, I was in Nancy's office. She was praying over me with oils. She was feeding me. Um, she was nurturing me. Um, she was detoxing me. Uh, mm. I'm sorry. Oh. Um, mm. And she just loved me. Um, Amazing. And she did the smartest thing. She did the smartest thing that, that she could have done. She connected me. By the end of that day, she connected me to another recovered alcoholic. Um, and so by the end of the day, I was sitting at club 12, which is like, kind of like our main headquarters for, for AA here in San Antonio. I'm sitting at club 12 with another woman who is, who is recovered, beautiful, three kids, um, family married. And I'm sitting in front of her, like you did what? And you're where now? Like, I mean, I was, she had what I wanted, you know, and that's where my walk in recovery started. Wow. So, you know, there's this false belief out in some, I think in some Christian circles that um, Christians don't do drugs or get drunk or do awful things. Um, I've seen the exact opposite. Christians are just as susceptible as non-Christians to the, to this alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever um, for a lot of reasons. I have my own theories and, and thoughts on that. But uh, you were a believer, and um, still, this had a hold on you. Yes. And 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 God was with you throughout every step of the way, not judging, simply loving you in the midst of this journey. Yes. And that's the kind of God that we serve. Yes. One who just loves us and cares for us and is with us in the mess. Uh, and it can get messy. And you got through it and God was with you. And now you're, it's like you said, you had to come to that place on your own. No one, no one could have preached you into it, talked you into it, logicked you into it. Right. right. You had to take your own journey, get to that place where you said, I'm done. Right. Right. Do you see that as you minister to others and you've been in this world yourself, but you're you're in the world helping others? Uh, is that pretty universal? Folks just have to come to a place where they say, yep, I'm done. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that that's true. I also believe that my ministry is a great example of that, that we as believers have a responsibility to provide this, let's call it space for grace, right? Mm-hmm. That, that we do need to take a part in providing that space for grace because that's what I was given. And that's what was attractive to me with the Holy Spirit, that grace that Nancy was giving me, that um, that loving me when in my worst, you know, loving me even harder at my worst. It's like the worst I, wor I was, the harder I was loved, you know? We don't need to be that doctor with the clipboard right. saying shame, shame. Right. You know, there's enough shame. I put enough shame on myself. 
I don't need your shame added to it. And we need, I love the way you said that, we need uh, space for grace. Yes, absolutely. That's what they created for me and, and what I live for today. Absolutely. Did you, um, I heard, I understood uh, as you're, as Nancy is nurturing you and you're coming back, um, give us a couple more um, thoughts around this, your journey. It's just been an incredible journey that it's a whirlwind that you brought us through um, of where you started to realize, number one, that God isn't like you thought this concept of God and two, that God has actually radically transformed you. When did you start understanding some of that? Radically. Um, I think I started to really wrap my head around and really internally process that um, around my first year of sobriety. Um, A big reason for that is because I, I put a lot of pen to paper and a lot of therapy and a lot of those things. Um, But I think that first year really, you know, but then I also, you know, because in 2013, I start seeing Nancy and, and she leads me to also treatment. So I went to treatment at Haven for Hope. And that was definitely a space for grace. I think a big part of that is because they have, this was new for me, they have people working there with lived experience. So like when I'm there doing my intake, I wanted to walk out. I was looking around. I was judging people. Haven for Hope is not Disney World. You've got people with untreated mental health issues still in their addictions, you know, yelling or whatever, right? I remember looking around like, I'm not like these people. I don't need to be here. And I was going to leave. And the intake specialist, um, he stopped me and he put his pen down because I was I was kind of making fun of him because I was like, how do you work here with tattoos? Because in my head, this is the largest transformation facility in the nation. So you've got to have like all these master degrees to work here in a white coat, right? But really, that's not what it was. They have people living there with lived experience. So he's doing my enrollment for this rehab that I do not want to go into. But he's also telling me this, this is how I got sober. I'm like, what? And you're working here? Like that was, that was so such a mind blow for me, you know, because in my head, again, checking the boxes in my perception of God before was if you're a sinner and you did those things, like you're done, you, you have nothing left for you. Like what, what's going to be left for you to offer the world you've already. And and now I see that completely opposite, you know, um, if that makes Man. sense. It does. It's uh, when folks are struggling, uh, I do think they have to come to the point where they're done. And I think, as you said, uh, as believers, and I think specifically as grace filled believers, we need to offer that, that uh, space uh, for grace uh, and, uh, and let folks be on their journey yeah. and, uh, and where we can, Help them along the way uh, on their journey. Be that be that person who can um, meet you in the elevator and uh, meet you or outside the elevator and to give the card and to do. Some people say, "I don't know what to do." What would you tell somebody who says, "I don't know how to help"? How can somebody help? What are things that they can do to help um, specifically people experiencing homelessness? Right. Homelessness or experiencing drug addiction or, you know, a lot of people feel I'm not qualified. Yeah. And I, and I love that because I love that people are being honest with themselves because a lot of people aren't and they step in where their lane is not. So that's important to be, to have discernment with. But um, I think that 
remind me of the question again. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, no, no. It's, it's, it's this idea of, I think as believers, um, sometimes it's scary when we, when we um, come and interact with someone who might be uh, on drugs or oh, might, yes. yeah. How do, how do, how do I help? Yeah. And I think that there's a couple different answers for that. One, I think the biggest thing is to connect them to someone who is experienced in that field. For example, exactly what Nancy did to me. Nancy played her part in the warm handoff and the loving and the meeting me where I'm at um, and the trust piece. Right. And then what did she do? She's not an active, you know, active alcoholic or, or addict, but she connected me to someone who was or someone who's experienced with that. Right. right. I think that's that's pivotal for people's walks. Um, and I experience it all the time. We, we work in an organization where. In our area, there's a lot of encampments, um, homeless people, you know, that are choosing to live on the street or having to live on the street because they don't fit criteria at other places. Mm-hmm. And we see people pull over 10 times a day giving food when we're serving food. We have a day center serving food next to us. We have all these food, all this food that we're serving. And I think to myself, man, like that $30 of those pizzas, like could have gone to an ID. And an ID can open up so many options for someone experiencing homelessness, jobs, um, uh, placements for housing. Like they don't have IDs, so they need those IDs. So I think redirecting and people just getting honest with themselves, like they people have big hearts and they want to help, but you have to humble yourself and step back and say, okay, maybe my part is to only make the sandwiches for the, for the 200 sandwich bags that need to go out to the 200 homeless people, you know, people experiencing homelessness. Right. Does that make sense? Um, versus, you know, the person who's going to be out there actually giving them out. And I think really taking a step back and trying to fill those spots and the needs, you know. Right. And there are some incredible organizations doing that and you can plug in um, and support that way. Your journey comes through to this point where you have your, you said you're done and you're, you're beginning this new journey. How long uh, did this journey take you to number one, really come to the point of, wow, I'm, I'm recognizing my new identity in Christ. I'm recognizing the truth that God loves me. And then where are you now? Great question. So I'm about to, um, October, I keep doing what I'm doing. October, I'll have 10 years of sobriety. Um, And, and walking with God. And I think it wasn't until I found the arsenal in my church, which is about five years of sobriety, halfway through my sobriety, mm-hmm. even though I knew God and, 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 and learned a lot by that time, it wasn't until I, I joined arsenal that I really understood the grace message. Um, so it was around the middle of my sobriety when I really started internalizing that. I also, around that time, I had also fallen into a depression. I didn't relapse and use or drink again. But what I did was switch my addiction from meth or dr- or alcohol to food. Um, and I gained a good 80 pounds in like a year. And I shut down. I stopped going to meetings. I mean, I was sitting in the heaviest shame and guilt and what it, was you know, What were the thoughts driving uh, that you remember at that time? Um, that was contributing to this depression? Sure. Um, I had, I had a life experience in a relationship. I got cheated on really bad. Um, Mm. And instead of turning to God, I turned to food. 
Um, yeah. you know, and I, and I, I, I quickly declined. Um, and, and it was that shift of, of just choosing to feed my flesh in some kind of way, instead of really coming to God to do some surgery on my pain that I was feeling from that, from that breakup. I mean, I, breakups I can do, but when I, I have a pattern of getting cheated on and, and that always triggers the depression and the whole, um, see, I'm not worthy. I'm never going to be anything. It triggers those all old lies come back. Don't they? I'm a horrible mother. I'm going to lose my kids. I mean, from one second to the next, I've created this story in my head that I'm just right back to that same mother that abandoned her kids. Um, that addict, that junkie that my family saw or sees, you know, like right back to that place. So mm. That's the enemy just did a number on mm -hmm. you to just put those lies of that you have no value, that things haven't really changed. Um, and you went into, and it's, um, it's just, I know you're grateful you didn't go back to the old life, but like you said, we do substitute, don't we? we uh, our addictive mm -hmm. behaviors. Christian or not. Yep. Christian, all of the things. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. uh did, and so you, did you, what brought you out of that? Out of the depression? Yes. Um, I actually, part of my desire, what I love, I love serving others. I get a supernatural high off of that. And um, I found out that there was this man that needed, um, he was dying from, from for uh, stage four kidney failure. And so one day I was like, well, why doesn't someone give him a kidney? Um, and so I found out very quickly that that wasn't, um, I wouldn't say hard to do, but that I could be a part of that. So I had this desire to help this man and donate one of my kidneys. Well, to do that, I had to lose a significant amount of weight. Um, but in that process, the motive was to help someone else live. But in that process, God was my why. I wanted to, I wanted a relationship with God again. So I started working my program again. I start, I got a sponsor. I started going to meetings. I started, I, I joined, you know, got back in the church. Arsenal had a big part of that with getting me connected. Um, and I just got active again. Um, and before I knew it, um, I mean, I shouldn't say before I knew it, it took me, it took me a good year and a half to get out of that depression and lose all the weight and get back to functioning and being well again. So I was able to give him that kidney last July, July next, actually, actually next week will be a year um, wow. that I donated. And I have, I, this past year has been the healthiest, happiest, joyful, like year of my life. Um, and, and I just, that's where I'm at right now. Wow. <laughs> when, uh, let me, let me wrap up with this. When did you, um, this idea that we often uh, focus on, uh, especially on the podcast and at Grace Ministries International, uh, when did you uh, first learn about your new identity in Christ and how did that impact you? I first learned about my identity in Christ um, yeah. in, in 2018. I was in and out of relationships, and this is in my sobriety. Um, I actually went through a phase. I have to be careful when I talk about this because a lot of people think that I'm trying to bash or have a perception or opinion on homosexuality. And that's not right. what this is about. This is about identity. Mm -hmm. But around that time, I, I started dating a woman and we were, we got engaged. We were best friends. I was totally, we were set. And then um, I had this weird conviction. I'm just going to say like feeling like mm -hmm. condemnation, conviction. I don't know what it was, but I went to Mark Jones, that counselor I was telling you about. And I sat with him and I told him something's not right. And, you know, he didn't sit there and tell me 
homosexuality is wrong, whatever. He didn't sit there and tell me. He prayed with me and he, he pointed me to God and he said, let's ask God right now to, to reveal, to close the door or open it. Mm-hmm. Well, the very next morning I found out and we already had the wedding set. We already had our engagement party. Um, the next very next morning I found out she was cheating on me. Um, and that's what it took for me to leave her and do some digging on some self-work with me. And through that self-work with my sponsor, I realized that I'm, well, when I'm not gay, um, that I have significant unhealed sexual trauma with men um, and that it was absolutely an identity issue. Mm-hmm. Um, started My counselor, Nancy, started to really dig into teaching me my identity in Christ. And for some reason, the more I understood my identity in Christ, I wasn't confused about my sexuality anymore. Um, and that's, that's kind of how that happened. I think that is uh, one thing that is so important and we can just wrap up with from this incredible journey is that uh, our identity in Christ is so foundational, uh, knowing that God has made us the righteousness of Christ. He's made us holy and he's made us complete uh, in him that his forgiveness uh, is is indisputable the cross settled the question the cross settled it all and all judgment was placed at the cross and we can rest in the fact that we are accepted that we've been made right we don't have to keep working uh and trying and and serving to get god to like us just a little bit more he is 100 percent pleased with us uh and we are his children and uh, that is so foundational. And I think so many are struggling uh, today uh, and sometimes uh, get into these uh, addictive patterns because uh, either one, they're trying to get God to like them, or two, they believe they're unworthy, unacceptable, and so why not? And uh, they're, in, they're in all of these different for various reasons, these cycles of addiction. And uh, it's God has accepted you, has accepted me simply because of Christ. And uh, that's uh, one of the most foundational things. That's what we really rest in in the ministry uh, at Grace Ministries International is pointing people to the finished work of Christ and, uh, and some people say, and I get this question all the time, Mike Quarles and I, uh, would we did Freedom From Addiction webinars for many, many years. And the question we got all the time was, so are you anti-AA? And I will tell you, absolutely not. They have a lot of resources. They have a lot of incredible folks there who will love and accept right where you are. Do I think that... Um, AA is the answer. No, I think Christ is the answer. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But AA, don't knock them. There's some incredible folks there who love the Lord. There's some incredible folks there, by the way, who aren't even Christian. And you know what? They are more graceful than many Christians that I that I know. That is true. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I want to be clear that... Uh, if you're struggling with an addictive behavior, struggling with uh, alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever it may be, uh, AA is a great place to start. Yes. And if you need resources, they've got them. Uh, and uh, and go there. 
I think that along that journey, that if you want to experience the freedom of Jesus Christ, then you'll come to Christ and you will not only um, come to him for salvation, but realize the transformation that happened when you do, that he has made you right, that your old self is crucified, that he's raised you up a brand new creation, and that you're loved and accepted in him, uh, and you have his power in victory. And I just wanted to say that, you know, some folks um, kind of rail against AA, and I want you to know there's some incredible folks there, and you've experienced them, uh, and uh, I think uh, it's worthy to say that. Uh, yes, I believe Christ is the answer, and yes, I believe that we're set free by the power of Christ, uh, and that's what we do at GMI. Uh, I want to give you just a moment to mention um, the Christian Assistance uh, Ministry and how they can find out more information, where you are, and what you're doing there. Absolutely. So I'm the director of homeless services at Christian Assistance Ministry. We have two locations in San Antonio. I'm the one downtown. And if you came to our campus, um, we serve the whole community, sheltered or not, but I run the side of the shelter, outside of the ministry that is just for the unsheltered. Anyone homeless can come to our campus. You can get yourself a shower, food, clothes, um, immediate emergency services like document recovery, ID recovery, which is vital for our population. Mm. Um, and, and case management and connection to emergency shelters. If they are ready to make that step, um, we connect them to housing and shelters and things like that. So they can, anyone can connect on, um, we have our website, we have social media pages, christianassistanceministry.org. Um, and then um, we also have our social media on Instagram and, and Facebook as well. Um, we have donation stations. We are, um, we're privately funded, huge blessing. Um, and we run off donations and volunteers. I constantly have people ask me, I love, you know, serving the homeless. Like, what can I do? Please come to us. We cannot function without our volunteers. You can be downstairs making sandwiches. You can be in my line giving out sandwiches, sorting clothes. Um, please contact us because we could, we, we could always appreciate you guys help, you know, in volunteering. That's amazing. Well, Valerie, thank you so much for sharing uh, what an incredible journey <laughs> it has been. And uh, we're just grateful for you and all that uh, you are doing, how you love the Lord, uh, and uh, how you found your uh, identity in Christ. And you're just resting uh, in that uh, and the joy that is just evident flowing through you. And mm. thank you. No, thank you. And uh, for folks, if you're uh, if God has touched your heart and you want to um, give to the ministry at uh, ChristianAssistMinistry.org, then uh, head over there and donate. Donate your time. Uh, if you're struggling, then I want you to know that God hasn't abandoned you. He's with you in the journey. Uh, you will never outrun His love. So I just encourage you to stop running. Because uh, when you turn around, you're going to find open arms and uh, seek him, ask him, talk to him. He's there. He's with you. He's not, he's not against you. He died for you uh, and offers his grace to you. So whatever the Lord is encouraging you do, uh, to do, whether it's to support, to give, uh, to, um, to reach out and help someone that the Lord has brought to your mind, let me encourage you to stop thinking about it to stop talking about it and take that first step and start walking. 
You've been listening to Walking Free, a production of Grace Ministries International in Marietta, Georgia. For more information, go to our website at gment.org. That's G-M-I-N-T dot O-R-G.